All views and opinions expressed in this podcast may lead to learning. All information provided is for educational and developmental purposes only and is not intended to be a substitute for a growth mindset. Before taking action, please consult your motivation. This is the Teacher Talking Time Podcast. I think another reason is that a lot of language syllabuses still are very much based on written language and teaching people to say written forms, which is not, it's not to say that nothing that is written is ever spoken, but of course there are big differences. Another problem comes from, I think, perhaps sometimes there's a perception that a conversational exchange is really just a question and an answer. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to teach or relatively simple to teach, you know, how are you, fine, thanks, that kind of stuff. And and but things kind of stop there. And that's quite hard for people to, for then learners to take it anywhere beyond that. So that's, that's a question mm-hmm. of perhaps discourse. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Teacher Talking Time podcast brought to you by Learn Your English. To those of you who are new listening to this podcast for the first time, the main aim of our podcast is to really deconstruct language teaching to bridge the gap between research and personal practice. Each episode is dedicated to our vision of education, continuous growth that is accessible, affordable, and appropriate to your context. Andrew, we also have a membership, don't we? We absolutely do our Learn Your English Teacher Development Membership, where you can join a community of curious teachers and educators who want to achieve more without having to plan and teach more. Leo, you like to say, teach more mindfully, right? That's right. And that's what we try to do with our membership. We try to provide content, mentoring, courses, and more importantly, a community, a community of practice to help teachers plan less so they can actually have time to develop more. And what we focus on, Andrew, mindful and meaningful teaching, better thinking, continuous learning, developing a healthy mind, purposeful creativity, mental tools for thought, and humanistic education. Andrew, if somebody wants to become a member, what do they have to do? Oh, so simple. Just go to courses.learnyourenglish.net and become a member right there. You'll have access to all of our materials, not only for this month, but for all the months that you missed in the past. If you want more information, check out learnyourenglish.net slash memberships. I'm very excited to announce that today's guest is a teacher, a trainer, and a researcher. He's a senior lecturer in applied linguistics and TESOL at the University of Liverpool in the UK. On top of that, he has been involved in English language teaching for over 25 years, and he has worked in China, Japan, Thailand, and the UK. During this time, he taught general English, business English, exam classes, classes for young learners, and even undertook material course development and teacher training. He is also a researcher with interests related to spoken language, and he has produced work on spoken corpora, lexis, and lexical grammar, as well as classroom applications of corpus data and instructed second language acquisition. 
His most recent publications include a book with Halenko in 2018, Successful Spoken English, Findings from Learner Corpora, also Literature, Spoken Language and Speaking Skills in Second Language Learning, Practice in Second Language Learning in 2018, both as an editor and as a writer. And finally, his brand new book, which we talk about in this podcast, Conversation Strategies and Communicative Competence, which basically reports on research into teaching conversation strategies as a means of developing communicative competence. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me in welcoming Chris Jones. All right, Chris, thanks for joining us and uh, welcome to the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Thanks for asking me. Yeah. Um, so we're very excited for, for this interview today because, I mean, you have, you're highly experienced. You're, you're a teacher, you're a trainer, researcher, mm-hmm. also mm-hmm. writer. Um, we're going to be talking um, about your career um, as well. Um, I I'm really want to think about, jump into your methods for thinking. I want to think about how you approached this book. Um, mm-hmm. Your, your writing process, things like that. And of course, we're going to be talking about the book, Conversation Strategies, um, Communicative Competence. But um, perhaps we could start right from the beginning and talk about your, your, your humble beginnings in language education. I'm actually very curious, how, why did you choose to become a teacher and then a researcher and now a writer? Okay. Um, yeah, I, I first became a, a I was, first of all, I was an English language teacher. And I started doing that um, way back in 1993. And my first job was in uh, Japan. And I stayed in Japan for quite some time on and off. Um, Then I subsequently went to work in Thailand. And then uh, in Japan again. And then um, all that time I was doing teaching and uh, slowly got into teacher training. And then I came back to the UK and got um, a job in a university. That was in 2006. And um, that involved teaching, and involved some teacher training as well, in a sense. It was teaching undergraduate and postgraduate students, uh, TESOL students. Uh, and then I moved in 2016 to my current job at the University of Liverpool. And... Um, in that, in, in the current job, I, I work on uh, MA programs and also supervise PhD students. And the MA programs are applied linguistics and uh, TESOL programs. So really, um, I suppose the what happened was as I was teaching, I slowly got interested. As as everybody does, you start asking yourself questions about where things come, why things are the way they are, and where things have come from. And I think that was probably sparked further when I did an MA. And I was interested in that kind of thing and researching, researching things in general. And then I slowly got interested in, you know, research. And as as a full time teacher or teacher trainer, it's difficult really to conduct research. Uh, You just don't have the time to do it and all the resources or the environment sometimes to do it. So when I got a job as uh, you know an academic post in the UK, then obviously there's an expectation that you will undertake research and also it was in it was where my interest was going so when I came back to the UK I started pretty much straight away doing my PhD and then the research side came out of that really that answers the question it does it does um 
what pushed you into teaching? I think that's um, like, Oh, okay. Yeah. Like how did you well, decide to become, because this is something that I'm, I'm, I'm usually fascinated by because I think we all decide to become teachers for different reasons. Yeah. Just stumbled upon teaching sometimes. In my case, it was just, I didn't want to do anything else. And I was kind of like offered a job and then I eventually started teaching, but I didn't yeah. choose to become a teacher. What was the, uh, impetus for you to well, i think like a lot of people in our field it was <clears throat> partly chance and partly accident uh in my case i think when i finished my undergraduate uh, studies i i, I kind of realized i was interested in teaching something mm. and i did my undergraduate degree was in english english literature so i thought it might be perhaps something connected to that but i wasn't sure and then i was talking to a friend and purely by chance they mentioned about uh, teaching english as a foreign language so i went along and did a one week uh, it was a it was just an introductory course it didn't give you any kind of qualification it mm -hmm. was just to give you a flavor of what it was all about and i actually really didn't enjoy it at all <laughs> um why I can't really remember at the time why. I think it was probably a very good course. I just don't think I was quite ready for it or mm. quite in the mindset, I suppose. Right. Anyway, I then came to the kind of realization that I was I was quite keen to uh, work abroad, live abroad if I could, and it seemed like a, this seemed like a, a, an opportunity to do so to, to teach English, and so I started kind of applying for posts. And one came up in Japan and uh, they gave me the job. Um, and that was the end of that, really. Wow. Yeah, because you basically mentioned you've, you've worked in China, <laughs> Japan, yep. Thailand, yep. UK, and you've basically taught pretty much all, all different um, strains of English, general English, business English, I think you've mentioned, yep. exam classes, even young yep. learners, I guess, right? <laughs> yeah, I did teach some young learners. The youngest I ever taught was three, was, uh, three year olds. <sighs> Uh, wow. which was uh, interesting. Um, <laughs> yeah, three years old, right up to, you know, uh, you know, pensioners. Yeah, so um, all, all kinds of different ages. Wondering if you taught conversation strategies to a three-year-old. That would have been... No, uh... <laughs> no. I think I was trying to... I, 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 yeah, it's hard. To, it's very hard to recollect <laughs> that particular lesson. I was right. probably, there, was, there seemed like there was hundreds of them it was in a kindergarten, so there was there was a lot of these small children right. uh, following me about, and we were probably singing a song or something like that. Right. Yeah. And then, of course, you followed the the, the regular route that most um, people in language education follow. You, you took yeah. a CELTA, yeah. um, Delta, and then MA, PhD, and so on and so forth. Yeah, um, that's right. Before we jump into into you know your writing process, and then we talk about the book. There was, uh, I really like reading, something that I'm very interested in is when I'm reading a book, I'm always looking at, um, what do we call the acknowledgements, right? So it was yep. interesting because that gives me a lot of um, insight into how you, how a person perceives language. And in your mm -hmm. case, I found a lot of very interesting um, mentions or names of people who had influenced your teacher. So I would like to talk a little bit about that because sure. you mentioned, you mentioned Ron Carter, mm -hmm. which again, is a fantastic uh, researcher and has written extensively on, on um, corpora, language. Mm -hmm. um, you mentioned Scott Thornberry, who actually wrote a book, which I'm 
probably we're going to talk about that book, which is, uh, I think it's the conversation book, description. Yeah. I think it's yeah. from description to pedagogy, I guess, if I'm not mistaken. Yes. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned Dave Willis. So I want to talk a little bit about that as well. So perhaps you can tell us more about the people that had influenced your teaching and perhaps even how you, you look at language. In this case, Ron Carter, uh, Farbury, yeah. Willis. And I think the article that we you shared with me with uh, McCartan and McCarthy, maybe we can talk mm. about that as well. Yeah, sure. Uh, I mean, Ron Carter uh, was, uh, you know, has been a major influence on 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 what I've done in terms of research and and initially my my teaching. So, I got interested in what um, I was I was interested in spoken language and you know conversation and how to teach people to have better conversations. Um, partly when I was in Japan and also also partly when I was in in Thailand and. It kind of, I, I came across, I think it was on my MA, I came across um, an article by uh, Ron and Mike McCarthy that they wrote in 95, uh, Spoken Grammar, What Is It and How Can We Teach It, which is a very, quite a well-known article now. Yes. Uh, and when I read it, at that particular time when I read it, it, it was a sort of eureka moment for me because I thought, all oh, right, okay, now I understand. This is where I've been, This is this is where I've been going wrong, really. You can't hope to teach uh, people to be better at uh, conversations, etc. If you don't uh, aren't aware of spoken language and how it's different to written language, and obviously they they were looking at spoken corpus data. So that's really where I started to get interested in, and I read other things that they were doing. There's another book that they did in I think it was '97 called Exploring Spoken English, which is very very unique in that it just has transcripts and there are recordings of corpus data and then they go over and make little bullet points after about the different things that people are doing in the conversations nothing was like nothing there was nothing like that at the time spoken corpora were not available they were not really on the radar of most people so that was a that was it wasn't a methodology book it wasn't a teaching book in some sense it was just about language this is what this is what people do when they they talk to each other in various situations and that had a real influence on me I then went and did my MA at Nottingham partly because well mainly I have to say because Ron and Mike were there and then I met I met Ron Carter on uh, one of my modules uh, and we got on very well and um, I ended up going back to do my PhD there with him as my supervisor nice so that was that was you know that's and you know so was, and then he, he's, he had a major influence on on that and probably everything i've done subsequently yeah yeah that's ron uh the other people you mentioned were willis farbury oh, willis. yeah yeah i think i always uh, about dave willis i i always liked and also i should say dave, jane willis as well i've always liked the way that they wrote uh, because they were they were academics, but they wrote they came at things from being initially from being teachers, mm-hmm. and um, they put things across in a very simple way and put things across in a very clear way. And I I always liked that. And I think there's two books by Dave Willis that I think are perhaps have been somewhat underrated over time maybe maybe it's just me but um there's one he wrote i think in 91 called the lexical syllabus that's a classic was yeah um is now out of print i think it is um which was way ahead of its time when you look back at it now but it's how you could you could potentially 
make a lexical syllabus based on you know the frequency of words that was mm-hmm. th- that was based on the co-build uh, corpus seems seems amazingly radical now for the time <laughs> and then there was a book he wrote later uh, called rules patterns and words which is about language and it's also kind of about methodology uh, I think the language side of it personally is more interesting for me Mm-hmm. But I just really like the way he talks about various aspects of language and how language works in that book. Um, and I think, and I saw him give a talk on that book once, and I thought it was just very, very good, very clear. So I've always liked his stuff. I actually like, although they they were they were the the co-build textbooks, which I think uh, Dave and Jane Willis uh, authored, they were not a success publishing wise. But I, I've always I kind of admire the fact that at least they tried to do something different. Yes. Um, I don't think it worked at the time. I think it was, there's various reasons for that, but um, I think it was, it was good that they at least tried to do something different, although it was obviously in publishing terms, not a success. Do you have any inklings why it wasn't a quote unquote success in publishing terms? Cause that's interesting. Cause there are like so two of the books that we use in our community, like all the time and uh, we love them. So it's curious and I'm a bit, younger to then you know 1991 is mm. i was alive but you know not thriving let's say <laughs> so um in your opinion what why did why were they not publishing successes those two those two books i think the co-build books the, te- the co-build textbooks were um there's maybe there's too many things too many things being tried at the same time there was a lexical syllabus there there was um there was a kind of task-based approach to teaching and there was a very, very different kind of design to the books. And when you sort of pick them up and look at them, you can't immediately quite get what's going on and what to do with them. It, it takes quite a lot of working out. I don't think design-wise they were particularly helped by the design, but then maybe that was just a uh, that was just something <laughs> on so the time. True. It's true. Yeah. So I, th- I think probably that really too many different things were being tried. Do once. you do you also find Chris? Because I have copies. I actually bought expensive copies ten years ago of the Co-Build course book because I'm a huge fan of Willis's as well. And I also find that in something you said earlier, if you're not aware of language, specifically spoken language or mm-hmm. lexical grammar, I think yeah. you can't read if you don't have a very high level of language awareness, you can't really teach lexically you can't look at language and analyze it and break it down and help students notice what willis mm-hmm. is, uses the recognition system building and then exploring um i also yeah. find i don't know to what extent you agree with me but i also find that one of the reasons why the book didn't succeed is because a lot of teachers just didn't know how to handle that kind of language they're more i guess most teachers were trained to teach grammar explicitly Again, you you preemptively say today we're going to talk about this specific target language. So it's it's very linear in the way we teach that. And as you said, the book is a, a I would say it's a it's a bit confusing because as you said, there's so much in one page that yeah. you don't even know what to focus on. Yeah, I think you know the structural syllabus, if you like, is uh, is has many reasons why it's it's kind of stayed in place really. Um, I think one reason is that it's uh, it's it's it has the appearance of being neat and tidy. Second, it has kind of um, 
it has precedent because that's what people have seen before. And third, as you said, maybe it's something which is covered a lot in um, training. Uh, you know, and there's nothing wrong with grammar. Every, all students need grammar, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, so I think if you come along and you kind of offer something which is quite radically different to that and saying, actually, we're going to we're going to take things in terms of language via Lexis. It's uh, it's a big jump mm-hmm. for a lot of a lot of uh, people and for various reasons. Just yeah. One last mm-hmm. point on that, because I'm curious. And you said that you saw Dave and Jane speak. Did they mm-hmm. alleviate mm-hmm. any of those concerns when you heard them talk about it or did they kind of compound it? <laughs> yeah i saw i saw yeah well i didn't see them i didn't see them speaking about the coburn okay. books because that was probably before before my time as well really but um i saw dave willis on his own talking about rules patterns and words uh, that was a presentation of that book yeah and there were some questions really about his uh approach in in the audience there but i think i think he dealt with them quite well really um okay. uh jane willis i saw i've seen presenting about um uh, about task-based learning, I think mm-hmm. that was, yeah. So that was to a, a very, very large group of teachers, yeah. And I think whether one, whether you, uh, you know, adopt that methodology or buy into that methodology or not, she was very, very good at um, explaining it and mm-hmm. making it accessible to the teachers who were there, and um, you know, giving them every every kind of opportunity to 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 use it if they if should they wish to no i, I completely agree with you i think that's what makes because we we have a, a community of practice and the book that we're actually using is rules patterns and words and i've read that book at least six times and it's amazing how many insights you get from the book every time i specifically for me every time i reread that book and then reading your book i could see a lot of a lot of similarities and the way you write is also um, very accessible, and mm-hmm. and that's kind of what I want to what I want to move on to is to talk about about the book, your the, your writing process, developing. What mm-hmm. was the perhaps? No, I think instead of asking about the book, I'd love to hear you speak more accurately about your writing process, Chris. What does it look like for you? Like, do you have like writing sessions? Do you force yourself to write every day? Like. Like when you sit down, is that an empty page? Is it bits um, and pieces? Like, what is it like? Uh, I, I, yeah, I'm, I, I certainly don't write. I don't write things every day or anything like that. No, um, okay. I'm not a novelist. Uh, <laughs> I think it's slightly different for everything I've written. I'm very used <laughs> to writing articles. So that gives you a kind of certain template and almost like, it's almost like every chapter is almost a little bit the same length as an article. So I just do things chapter by chapter with this book. It was, um, I had the kind of, I had the, obviously I had the idea and the introduction was kind of there first because that was part of the proposal. So I had a kind of starting point already. And then in terms of writing it up, uh, I did it in the order that, can't remember the order I did it in actually uh it it but I, it wasn't in the order in which the chapters are I started with when the data was there so right. I think the, the first of the first lot of data was the chapter on uh teacher evaluations of uh, materials because I had that data and I, I if I leave the data too long uh I can't usually remember 
I need to look at it fairly quickly. So I looked at that and then some of the other data from the other studies came in. So I, I did those in turn and then kind of mailed it all together. And um, in terms of the time I spend on it, yeah, it's, it's, if I'm, if I, if I get in the zone, I can do a lot, you know, write a lot regularly over quite a few days and it's best not to leave it too long. Yeah. Okay. I think the kind of advice I always give people like PhD students is when they're writing, because we're writing a PhD is a bit like writing a book in a way mm -hmm. is that um, it's very easy to think that you've got like five hours to work on something. And I'm going to spend five hours doing it, but you won't because you'll get distracted by the internet or, or whatever. <laughs> so, you know, you can be just as productive if you spend one hour, but make it a good hour, you know, productive hour. That's what I think. But yeah, it, it really does depend on what time I've got, what else is going on at the time. Yeah. And what about, let's talk about the book now, because then we can jump mm -hmm. into uh, conversation yeah. strategies. What yeah. was the, what was the initial, initial impetus to, to actually decide to write this book? Uh, there was probably two, two really. Probably the first impetus was, was somewhere in the distant past when I was first teaching. And I mentioned this in the preamble mm -hmm. that when I was working in Japan, students would often want to uh, develop their ability to have better conversations in English. That was a kind of priority for a lot of learners and a lot of learners I've met since in a lot of contexts. And, but they, it was difficult for them to get beyond basic question and answer stuff. And at the time I didn't realize, you know, what might help with that. So I think somewhere in there, there was, the, there was this, and then, Mike McCarthy and Jean McCartan wrote uh, a chapter for another book I did on practice in 2018. And they talked there about um, conversation strategies, which they have used in their own textbook series. And they talked about how that those could be used to develop a, a, develop a, 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 if you like, a syllabus of you know, conversation, or at least a means of organizing materials and classes and stuff around this. So I started to think about that then. I then also realized at the same time that this is a way to, you know, we know a lot about corpus data and data from spoken corpora and how, what people say and how they say things and how it's different from written English and things like that. But conversations are messy by their nature. And um, it's hard to know how you can organize that into some way into teaching, which would be you know, understandable by learners and, you know, achievable in some ways. So their, their idea of conversation strategies, which we can talk about a bit more in a moment, I suppose, but um, that gave me the initial thought. And then I thought, okay, has anybody actually researched any of this stuff in terms of, has, has anyone seen where it, whether it works or not? So I talked to and uh, I talked to Mike and Jan about that, and they didn't seem to think anybody had. So I thought, okay, that's an, that's maybe I should then. I'm interested to see if this if this works on in some way. And that's actually a question that somebody had sent to me. I think it was uh, Russell okay. Russell Main. <laughs> I have yeah. two. I have I have actually a bunch of questions from people, but one of the <laughs> questions he asked was that if you know of any other books that actually took the same approach as yours basically looking at one narrow topic through several perspectives, because that's what I think makes this book unique. If I say no, then of course, someone is going to find a book that, that does that. I don't know of anything. I do know of books. There were books. There's, there's been things written in the past 
where there was a whole book focused on a huge study, for example, like there was there's one, and I think it was might have been in 1964 on it's a methods comparison book, and it's a huge study, and it and it's just it's all about it's all about a comparison of method A and method B. Uh, but I don't know of anything. There's been lots of books which have focused on this on on the same thing, but uh, yeah, I, I don't particularly know of anything which is focused on this realization of conversation strategies in this way. No. Yeah, I think there was one book, and I remember it was uh, written by, I think it was Keller. Are you familiar with mm -hmm. Conversation Gambits? Yes. It's like an old book. That's the only book that I can think of that somewhat talked a little bit about strategies for, for conversation. But that book is yeah. also out of print. And I think it was published mm -hmm. by the same uh, publishing house mm -hmm. that uh, was um, the published uh, The Lexical Approach. I think it was LTP. Yes. Yes. Yeah. LTP. LTP. Right. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the question. I mean, yeah. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say that. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, there's been lots of studies on strategies and communication strategies, mm -hmm. and some things on conversation strategies. You know, published in uh, journals, etc. But uh, I don't know of a personally don't know of a book that takes uh, the same approach as I did here. No. Mm -hmm. So I think it was in the preamble, and as you mentioned, Chris, um, mm -hmm. when you were teaching in Japan, I think perhaps in Thailand, I think it's everywhere. One of the most common problems that students face when they're trying to learn a language is, is actually their inability to develop their conversational skills. Yeah. And as you said, more often than not, what well, learners, they, they cannot go, as you said in the book, which is great because Thornbury wrote a book about that, Be, they can't go beyond the sentence. Yes. Um, and I think a good example of that are the RIF sequences. And to listeners who are not familiar with the term RIF, is it, what is it? Initiation, response, and feedback. Is that correct? Yeah. yeah. So I think the question that I have, Chris, because I have my own theory, but I would love to hear you speak more about this, is why do you think this is the case? Is it because many classrooms are still adopting materials that are based on a synthetic syllabus where learners are taught very specific target language? And then at the end of that PPP sequence, they have to produce language to conform to that what, which was taught? Or is it because we're putting some sort of straight jacket on, on their language and expecting them to simply regurgitate language which they had been taught? Why is that the case? Why do you think students cannot, they learn English, but they can't converse in English? Yeah, I think that's a very big question and it's a complicated answer. I think one, one reason is uh, nothing to do with what students are actually taught. It's of course to do with uh, perhaps opportunities for them to speak to interact outside the classroom, which may be they may be limited in some situations. It it will depend. I don't think anymore. It's it's so much about the country that they are in, although that has an influence. Obviously, if you're in an English speaking country, it's much easier to interact and find opportunities for interaction, etc. But of course, people can interact online as well. So that's one reason. Um, and we shouldn't we shouldn't dismiss that because that is important. I think another reason is that a lot of language syllabuses still are very much based on written language and teaching people to say written forms, which is not it's not to say that nothing that is written is ever spoken, but of course there are big differences 
So if you take an example such as, and this is from uh, Mike McCarthy and Jeanne McCartan's uh, chapter, they talk about um, relative clauses and they talk about the fact that they are used very often to uh, make a comment on what somebody has said and to continue the turn in some way and to, as in an interactive way. So somebody will say, well, we went out to, we went to a restaurant last week and the, and the other person might say, which was nice or something like that. So mm. that might seem very, very simple, but that's not a written form of a relative clause, obviously. Right. And it's different. So if students are, taught, are only taught the written form, which is, you know, non-defining clauses are, I don't know, my brother, comma, who lives in London, comma, is a footballer or whatever. You know, that, that that's not, that, that, that structure is not without its uses, but it's, if they're only taught to say that out loud, to, to say that in, in a conversation, it's going to be very difficult. So I think that's, that's part of the problem. Another problem comes from, I think, perhaps sometimes there's a perception that a conversational exchange is really just a question and an answer. Mm-hmm. So it's very easy to teach or relatively simple to teach. Um, you know, how are you? Fine, thanks. That kind of stuff. And and but things kind of stop there. And that's quite hard for people to, for then learners to take it anywhere beyond that. So that's a, that's a question mm-hmm. of perhaps discourse. Yeah. So the, I think the question over, uh, you mentioned PPP and synthetic syllabuses and things like that. I think that's a slightly different issue. Mm-hmm. I don't wouldn't blame it necessarily on methodology. Mm-hmm. Although, of course, if students are not given any practice, that will, you know, any appropriate practice in the classroom, that will make things much, much more difficult for them. Let's take a quick break. We'll be right back. You know, quality professional development is such an important part of the teaching industry, but it's surprisingly hard to come by. That's why I was so pleased to come across Learn Your English, a company providing online teacher education courses with a fresh perspective. My name is Erin, and I'm an English language teacher. After a decade in the classroom, I found myself teaching the same things in the same way. My learning seemed to have plateaued. I wanted to take charge of my learning, and I really like how the online Learn Your English courses don't prescribe anything. They motivate me to reflect on my teaching and propose tactics and ideas I hadn't considered. If you're a language teacher wanting to learn inside your busy schedule, I highly recommend their online courses on Thinkific. Head on over to lyenetwork.thinkific.com. That's lyenetwork.thinkific.com. Take control of your education. You won't regret it. Hi, everyone. My name is Carrie, and I'm from Macau. This is Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. 大家好,我的名字是劉依慈,我來自澳門,現在聽的是 Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. It's good. No, this is an interesting answer, specifically what you said, opportunities to use the language. And what I find yeah. more often than not, specifically with lessons that I had observed in the past with, with the way, and again, going back to the methodology, my biggest problem with a synthetic syllabus and, and with a PPP approach is the fact that you are basically priming learners to use a very specific language point right from the get-go, as opposed to mm-hmm. using a task-based methodology where you're kind of like, okay, here's what, here's a task, and you have to eventually 
communicate. Mm-hmm. So I think normally what they're doing is they're negotiating, meaning conversation is going to break down. There's going to be some problems with clarification. They have to ask probing questions. They have to ask clarification questions. So I think a task-based methodology, in my view, is more conducive to developing these conversation strategies mm-hmm. as opposed to a PPP methodology where students basically are presented the rule, they practice the rule, and then they only have to, to produce the rule. And as you said, Chris, I find that a lot of the times what students are doing is they're producing language at, at a sentence level. Yes. As you said, they can't really go beyond that. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you mentioned, um, I think it would be very interesting for you to, for us to talk about the distinction between conversation and speaking. Um, yeah. And I think it was in the article that you shared with McCarthy and McCartan that they yes. basically argue that uh, communicative language teaching has often valued speaking practice above the mm-hmm. kind of practice which develops conversational ability. Could you elaborate on that? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I think that... Um, you know, communicative approaches have a lot, still have an awful lot to offer um, teachers. And as you said, you know, interaction in classroom and communicating for a real purpose, all of those things are of, however, wh- whichever framework people use or however they do organise their lessons, I think they're of, of a lot of value. And there's a number of activities, communicative activities, which are developed over the years, which are incredibly useful uh, and innovative, enjoyable, etc. I think they, they make the distinction between speaking practice and conversation practice because what sometimes happens is that what sometimes has happened and maybe still does happen to an extent under under the guise of communicative teaching is that students are given practice speaking and but what that practice really is is um, it's repeating uh, perhaps a structure or the structure of the day uh, and so they're saying it, but they're just repeatedly saying, you know, similar examples of, you know, sentence-based examples of one structure. Um, that's not without its value, but it doesn't, uh, I'm not sure how that, it's quite a long way, I think, for learners to go from repeating sentences to then putting that into a conversation. So they talk about, um when they talk about conversation practice, they say that it's very important to have, to obviously to have examples in 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 a in a conversational context first of all, um, obviously, and then to try to practice them within perhaps smaller conversations and you know converse, conversational discourse if you like. So rather than repeating the same kind of sentence pattern yeah that's 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 one of the differences that they mention yeah and i think that's an important distinction because i think sometimes we it's and i've i think probably all teachers at some point think that when you're giving students speaking practice of a particular language item um that their kind of conversational ability will somehow develop from that uh, but it's quite a long it's quite a long jump to go from that to being able to say, you know, I can, I can, I can, or whatever it might be, to actually putting that into the nature of interaction, you know. So that, that that's the difference that they mean, really. Interaction. I think that's the key, the key component here, because as you said, what they're most most of the time what they're doing is they're just 
displaying language, right? It's just basically mm -hmm. showing to the teacher that they are actually able to use the the target language. It is interesting because I remember um, in a CELTA course talking to a trainer and saying, like, how do you evaluate the success of a lesson? Well, if the students communicate using the target language, but I'm like, okay, but what if they didn't use the target language correctly, but they used other language that helped them or that prompt them into developing their conversation skills? Is that a failure? So I want to ask you that question. It, 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 when, when teaching conversation strategies, first of all, I think what we need to do is we need to define, and I think I would like you to define um, mm -hmm. what conversation strategies are, because they're very different from communication strategies. Yeah. Right? Yeah, so uh, I took the distinction from McCarthy and McCartan, and they basically broadly divide them into four areas. So one is um, one is listenership. So that's the ways that people that speakers show that they're listening to others. And there's a number of expressions they might use, such as you know that's interesting, that's right, or perhaps just uh, noises like mm or uh huh, mm -hmm. uh huh, etc. That kind of thing. We could subdivide into different kinds of listenership, showing surprise, etc., showing interest. So there's listenership. There is um, taking account of other people. So taking account of the other person who's who you're speaking to. And speakers can do this in a number of ways. One way that they can do it is by using vague language. Um, and then you are taking account of the fact that the other person will fill in the blanks for you if you like. So if somebody asks me about what kind of music I like, I might say jazz, reggae and that sort of thing. I'm not going to list every single type of music or every single artist because you would quite rightly walk away and do something else uh, by the time I finish my answer. So um, that's taking account of others. Many other ways we can take account of others, of course, but that's just an example. Uh, the other two are managing your own turn. Managing your own turn can be realized in lots of different ways. So one way is by um, showing that you want to uh, elaborate. So you might use a, a something like, I mean, to add something more to what you've said before, or to clarify what you said before, to reformulate it slightly. That's one way of managing your own turn. There are many others, of course. Uh, and then the other one is managing the conversation as a whole. So there you might use language such as, um, um, that's one way to do it. So those are four very, very broad categories. They can be subdivided. You could imagine the ways that they could be subdivided into different things. And we know when we look in a, corpus a spoken corpus common things common bits of language that people use to realize strategies like that so if we take um an example like i mean uh, very 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 frequent in most spoken corpora highly frequent not always used to show that you want to reformulate sometimes of course just to mark a pause but um and we can we can we can if you like assign different expressions to different strategies and those can be taught um you know those highly frequent phrases uh lexico grammatical expressions uh can be taught to uh to learners mm -hmm. yeah so that's that's what i meant by conversation strategy in there but as i said it's taken from mccarthy and mccartan's ideas i'm not trying to claim credit for that you just used a conversation strategy right there but as i said <laughs> um, well, I'm, I was interested in the uh, in the lexical grammar bit um, yeah. because I feel like 
a lot of the listeners, especially if, if they haven't been teaching for very long or if they haven't done an MA or, or anything, yeah. they probably won't be familiar with this lexical grammatical items that you, you speak of. Would mm -hmm. it be a mix of collocations and colligations? And I remember in the book, you found that the phrase, as I was saying, is 10 times more frequent than as he was saying. Yeah. There, so perhaps we can talk a little bit about this lexical grammatical items and um, any other interesting findings? Because you said, I mean, is, is actually very common. But I was, I was, I was particularly um, um, interested in the, in the, as I was saying versus as he was saying. <laughs> okay, yeah, I mean, yeah, lexicogrammatical items just mean that um, a lot of language is kind of on the border between, if you like, words and, and grammar. It, it, it's, it's a mixture of the two things. So we have in, in an expression like, as I was saying, we have, of course, uh, a particular list of words which tend to be in a particular order, etc. But it also tends to take a particular grammatical form. So um, if you look at a spoken corpus, probably maybe not surprising, we could say and people do of course say as he was saying as she was saying but they are much more likely to say as i was saying it's much more frequent mm. um because people use that to to manage their own to, to manage the conversation for themselves you know and to go back to something that they were saying uh, much more that seems to be much much more frequent so there is an option to 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 do other things with the grammar if you like but that doesn't always happen so things are you know get fixed into particular patterns uh, and they I suppose they're a mixture of as I said a mixture of words and grammar if you like and that's often termed lexicogrammar I think the term was first coined by Michael Halliday lexicogrammar mm -hmm. um, and there's a number of other patterns which are kind of on the border they have they have particular you know grammatical patterning maybe they take a particular tense and aspect for example but they also have a particular particular words that are used in them yeah i'm, I'm just the other part, the other yeah, part of the question was what sorry was it about i mean oh it was the as i was saying being yeah. 10 times more frequent than <laughs> as he was saying <laughs> yeah so just when you look in it i think i looked in a spoken corpus i think it was the british national corpus 2014 which you know, when you search for that, you find 10 times more examples of, as I was saying, um, perhaps not surprised because I think in conversations, you know, people do the pronouns I and you, not surprisingly, are far more frequent than um, he or she or they. And it's very interesting because to go back to published materials, textbooks, I find that when we learned to have conversations, we normally use the pronouns I and you. But yes. in textbooks, we're always using he, she, or they, which is interesting because now that you've mentioned that, I feel like there is a connection between pronoun usage and developing conversational skills. Because mm -hmm. as I said, a lot of the time students are talking about other people in the textbook. Oh, they did this. They did that. He had said that. He, she said that. As opposed to talking about, about themselves. Huh. That supports yeah, I my think theory. In, in, yeah, if you look in almost any spoken corpus, I and you are very, very, very high frequency items, much higher than other pronouns normally. Does um, it mean people just talk about themselves all the time? No, I don't think it does. But, you know, the immediate concern of the conversation is the here and now, what's going on. Right. You know, very often. And you said that, and I think it was in the book, you said that 
competent speakers of a language mm -hmm. don't necessarily consciously, and again, you're probably using these, we are using these conversation strategies subconsciously. So do you find that by explicitly teaching these strategies or even making learners more aware of them, they mm -hmm. will eventually use these strategies more effectively and naturally in the classroom or outside the classroom? Yeah. So obviously, we're, when you look at when you look at language, you're looking at the way that you know users of the language use it. You're looking kind of retrospectively of what they've done and then applying strategies to it and saying and, and trying to account for what they're doing. But you know, most many competent speakers of the language, of course, won't be using the won't be using these strategies consciously. Mm -hmm. just, you know, it's an unconscious thing. Somebody's using English as their first language or they're a highly competent speaker. They're probably just using them unconsciously. But you can use that to to then to look at what they're doing and to take account of the language, as I said, and maybe organize uh, you, the way that you might teach some of these things in your in your lessons and materials and things like that. And then does it work to teach to teach these explicitly to uh, learners? Well, that's partly what the book was about. Does it does it work? Um, or not now in the studies that i did uh in the book uh to one of them was for uh one of them was a, a kind of mixed method study uh mainly an experimental study where there was an experimental group and a control group and they were in the uk and um they were given two two types of tests they were taught the strategies obviously one group and they were given two types of tests and one was a production test and one was a a receptive test and on both measures at least in the short term yes compared to a control group they did significantly significantly mm -hmm. outperform the control group um the second study i did was with uh, one group of students in japan and that was not an experimental study in that way it was more of a study based on a kind of action research model and then i looked at their I looked at this group's diaries and they, they kept diaries and we did interviews and based on their self-report um yes they could make use of the strategies i mean that's what they reported being able to do they could make use of them they could remember them they could remember some of the language associated with them and it seemed to help them to feel more uh, to feel a little bit more confident in their conversations and it, it seemed to help them to be a bit more perhaps in control of what they were saying, you know, that, that came out in their data. So there's, there, there are different types of studies. So, yes, I mean, obviously, it's going to be difficult for most learners to, you know, in the moment, they're not necessarily going to remember, OK, this is the strategy. This is, you know, the, of course, but you can say that about anything which is taught yeah. explicitly. So. You know, the hope is that it gives them a kind of peg to hang it on and to 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 understand it and to to you can give them practice with it, et cetera, in the class. And then hopefully over time they will, um, you know, if they choose to, they will be able to use them better to have more successful conversations. That's the idea. So that, that's really interesting because I think you just answered the question I was about to ask <laughs> you, but I'm going to ask it anyway, just just to make sure, just yeah, to sure. clarify it. Because, because this always comes up, I feel like, when we talk about teaching speaking or teaching 
strategies for a conversation or communication is that as teachers, I think a lot of us say, you know, or, or think, what does it look like to teach speaking? Mm-hmm. If students are speaking, does that mean that mm-hmm. we're teaching speaking? And I feel like Paul Nation always comes up when we have these discussions too on his four strands. And where do you fall with that in, in terms of conversation strategies? Because as you just said, if we can teach it once and students can conceptually understand, okay, I, I get it. But is teaching conversation strategies more about the opportunity of fluency development and not necessarily as teachers saying, I have to teach something today, but giving our students an opportunity to practice and put in use what they've already been exposed to or already been uh, given given instruction on, let's say, explicitly. But this, these strategies develop, as you said, over time. So is then the focus on that strand of nation, the fluency development of they already are aware of it, but they need to develop the skill of it? Yeah, I think, yeah. I, I, you know, I, I think probably like all things with, you know, in terms of acquisition, obviously things will develop over time. But I think for an awful lot of learners, they haven't got lots of time. And they're coming to classes, and I pitch this in the book as a kind of something that people could, you know, focus on in in in, in the classroom. Obviously, there's many other ways that people could acquire uh, spoken skills, conversation skills, but it's not always available to them. I think most learners are coming to the classroom to at least have the development uh, speeded up in some way, hopefully. Um, you know that may or may not happen but uh, that's what they're sort of hoping for so I think I think that if uh, these these conversation strategies give teachers one way to uh, organize lessons on in this area uh, and uh, give them give them give them a means to do that and um, maybe give learners also a kind of help them to help them to organize it and to understand it a bit a bit more clearly i think if you if you if students are just given opportunities to uh you know talk to each other in in community activities yeah i think you know they will develop in in some ways but as you said it, it might take a long long time and i think they're probably coming to classes in order for us to help them to, to speed up that development so i i see this as one way that um, could help that. I'm pretty clear in the book that I'm not saying this is the way. It's not the only way. There are many. You know, I'm. There are. There may be lots of other ways, but I'm just. I just put it forward as a way, and I think that's a, a clear distinction that I tried to make. Yeah, and I, I. I think it was a great question, Andrew. And I think. I'm um, sorry, Chris. Uh, for that's uh, okay. A little late to this party, but oh, okay, uh, no yeah, problem. Andrew. I thought your. I thought your question was great, and and I think. What I like, Chris, you wrote a little bit about not only the lexical grammar, grammatical um, aspect of it, but also the sociocultural. And I think mm-hmm. really the classroom itself is kind of a space where we're preparing learners for the, you know, their target communities, right? And yeah. part of our role is to kind of make those affordances for them to have opportunities to, to kind of prepare for that, right? And and yeah. I certainly work in an EAP setting, so English for Academic Purposes setting. And it's, mm-hmm. it's amazing how many times I've taught presentation skills. <laughs> but mm-hmm. when I speak to my students after they graduate their programs, um, they often come to me and say, you know, Mike, I, 
I, I, I can give a presentation like, like a TED talk, like a TED talker, right? Like I feel super confident, but I'm still struggling with making friends and I'm really struggling with these kind of everyday real social, the interaction that Leo talked about earlier. I'm struggling with that day-to-day interaction. And um, it's a challenge though, isn't it, for teachers to find space in the syllabus to cover these things. I'm just wondering, um, it's kind of dovetails from, from Andrew's question. How, how might teachers find space in the syllabus? Do you see this as like a critical incident type thing where like, oh, here's a problem. How might we solve this? Or, or, mm-hmm. or are there any specific techniques that you feel might be um, easily applied um, without taking up too much space? Because there is that battle, right? Hello, everyone. Here's Sandra from Brazil. I'm here to say that the Learn Your English membership for teachers is an amazing opportunity to get together with other teachers from all over the world, read about different topics, and discuss. It's been an amazing journey. There are webinars. There is a lot of material which is available for us to learn about various topics. I can't wait to learn even more. Hello, everyone. My name is Adriane. I'm a teacher in Brazil. You're listening to Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Olá, gente. Meu nome é Adriane. Eu sou professora no Brasil. Você está ouvindo Teacher Talking Time, the Learn Your English podcast. Yeah, I think yeah, that's a it's a bigger question, perhaps. Uh, but um, yeah, I think. You mentioned about EAP, EAP situations. I think what happens on EAP courses very often is that uh, a lot of time, quite understandably, is given to uh, academic discourse, such as giving presentations, reading, writing. Okay, And there's a good reason for that. We all know that. But and then there is less time for helping people to interact and to you know have better conversations, more successful conversations, if you like. But actually, I think that that is critical because um, if they're in, particularly in an English-speaking environment, such as the one that I work in, that's the way they're able to get instant feedback on how they're doing. They can write an essay or, or, or something and then and they'll hand it in and it'll take a while to get any feedback. But their day-to-day interactions are where they get feedback on how they're doing and where, whether they're su- successful or, or not. And, you know, the learners from the study that I did in the book about in the, who were in the UK, they weren't studying on an EAP program. Uh, they were just studying on a general English program, but they were in the UK. And what we found was in their diaries that they did, did report going out of the class and using some of the strategies. And they did report that it helped them in some way. And they often reported about the kind of conversations that they were having were actually often on very very simple general everyday topics that's the kind of conversations that they wanted to have so it could be all kinds of things like i talked i went to the gym and i spoke to such and such about x or y you know that kind of thing or i spoke to a taxi driver and i showed i was listening and the conversation carried on a bit more you know that that okay it's very very simple they were you know lower intermediate level so you know, that might have influenced it. But yeah, I think certainly it can help people, help students have a feeling of, like, I think you mentioned the word agency, to, to, to feel 
more that they are in in control of what they they want to say and perhaps to have to make them have more help them to have more successful conversations yeah mm. i think my i was just taking notes here because i think we're <laughs> a different a different direction here um but i think it connects to everything that we have been talking about here because i'm thinking about the teacher i'm thinking about what the teachers need to know to teach conversation strategies and what do i mean by that is what do they look like in the classroom chris because one of the things i really liked about the book and i really liked about your approach to to writing and and to talking about conversation strategies is that you're not coming from a prescriptivist you're not telling people as you said this is the way to do it you're just showing them a way to do it so conversation strategies in the classroom do you find that is it good to follow perhaps even what uh, what Dave Willis talks about in rules, patterns, and words, starting with awareness? Maybe we can just build awareness first, and then we can build a system. Let's systematize. Let's categorize all of these. This is for listenership. This is for managing a conversation or managing a turn. And then moving on into opportunities to explore, to test out their hypotheses. So this is the first part of my question. But the second part is an interesting one because... You mentioned in the book the problem of using models. And a lot of the published materials that we have, and you've mentioned this in the book, the majority of the conversation models found in these published materials, they lack authenticity and, and, and some of those natural strategies that are often found in, in real conversations. So how can this problem be mitigated and while at the same time creating this um, these, this strategy to teach conversation strategies in the classroom. Maybe if I ask, answer the second bit first, okay. the first bit second. <laughs> yeah, regarding the kind of models of uh, conversations, um, I think there's, two, there's, there's several options. One option is to take data from a, from a corpus, uh, but I think it then needs to be modified in some way and, and packaged in a way which is more understandable and uh, accessible for learners because you know conversation is quite messy uh, mm. if you look at most, most corpus data it's hard to look at it from the outside and get much get that much from it particularly from a learner's point of view and i think that has some merits to it and i think that can be very beneficial um, it takes a bit more takes time to do that because and then most corpora won't come with any kind of recording so you probably would need the teacher would need to probably make a recording. Again, that's a bit more work. So uh, that's one option. Uh, and uh, McCarthy and McCartan in their book um, Touchstone series, yeah, they 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 oh, they yes, use right. conversations based on based on corpus data and, and modify mm. them. But they've had the time to, to to go away and do that. So that but anyway, that's one option. Another option is to use dialogues from other uh so for example there are a lot of conversations from novels or from plays or from bits of films which they're not the same as a as a as a unscripted conversation but they have some some of the features but they may be more interesting in motivational terms so that they can be used as a model the third the, the third thing is something that uh goes back right back to something that jane and dave willis um did which is to get people at a better level than your students are to um, record a conversation a model of the conversation that students want to have so they did it with tasks mm -hmm. uh, and it could be done could be done like that so for example students are doing a, a task 
after they've done the task, they listen to a recording, which is of speakers at a higher level than they are uh, doing the same task. And then you look at the language in that and the, it could be the strategies, et cetera, in that that are used. So that's a, that's a third way. And when I say a high level speaker, it doesn't have to be a native speaker, could be B1 student, could be a C1 student or, or whatever. So I think those are options. I think the third option is definitely, second and third option are probably simpler for teachers to, to do on an everyday basis. Um, especially now it's very easy, quick to make a quick recording, no problem to do it. Um, so those are, those are options in terms of making, you know, different, different models. First question was, I think, about methodology, right? About, yeah, I think that there are lots of different ways that people could approach this. I think um, the, the kind of Dave Willis idea that you said, which is about um, awareness first. I think, yeah, the first thing is definitely in however that's kind of modeled, that students, of course, need to see this language being used in context, in a, in a, in a, in a realistic a realistic context, I won't use the word authentic because it's kind of so loaded, but uh, anyway, realistic context. Uh, and they need, to see, they need to see that, need to understand it, et cetera. And then they need to uh, look at the language and become aware of its form and its function, definitely. Uh, however that's done, I think that's important. Uh, and then you talk about, yeah, system building, uh, that's, you know, categorization of things, isn't it? And, and you know, that, that to me is also part of awareness mm-hmm. and uh, i think that's sensible however again however that's done and then um exploration can come via um various forms of uh, practice in the classroom again however that is realized mm-hmm. um yeah i think that's fine i think the main thing is that we, when we when we when we taught when we taught the language we just said we, we, the lessons that were used in the in the various studies and the materials and things, they were realised in different, slightly different ways. The conversation strategies were, you know, similar, but we said we just abided by certain principles, you know, com- communicative principles. Language will be looked at in context. Um, students will look at form and function. Students will give were given different types of practice, mm-hmm. uh, you know, and uh, you know, given feedback, etc. It sounds like um, it's yeah. Sorry, it sounds like the teacher's own language awareness and knowledge about the language is quite important in all this, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I think always teacher language awareness is really vital. Um, I think that probably on a lot of courses there isn't because of time there isn't enough time given to that and the importance of that, and it's maybe it's left to take for students for teachers to take care of it themselves and i can kind of understand that but at the same time i think it's it is very very important i think anybody can learn methods and um activities and how to set up classes but language awareness does take longer yeah and it, obviously very very important Oof, okay um <laughs> I have so many more questions to ask, but we're going to try to um, wrap this up because Chris is going to have to get his second dose of his vaccine at some point today. Um, But Chris, um, just kind of still into the book now, because the book is called Communication Conversation Strategies and Communicative um, Competence. So perhaps you could tell us a little bit. I mean, everyone here wants to know more about communicative competence. And I remember 
I was doing some research and I wanted to read more about communicative competence. But correct me if I'm wrong. This was uh, put forward by Himes, basically in yeah, the late right. 60s, mm. early 70s. Early 70s, um, yeah. Yeah. So, and he talks about four linked competences, linguistic, strategic, discourse, and pragmatic. And you said in your book, so perhaps talk about all those four, but you said in the book that conversation strategies are a way of linking all these four competencies can you can you tell us how this is actually achieved as well yeah um so the term communicative competence was from bell himes originally um i think it was subsequently taken taken and developed by other uh researchers um and then myself and colleagues talked about it in a in another book fairly recently and it's been broken down in various ways um subsequently to del himes um and People talk about grammatical competence originally, okay, but that's that's tends to have developed into linguistic competence, mm -hmm. obviously knowledge about language or various types, uh, pragmatic competence, um, competence in um, using appropriate language for the appropriate context with the appropriate, you know, when you're in, in a conversation or whatever within a, with a person. Uh, using it appropriately for that context, basically. Um, mm. Strategic competence is generally seen as um, having the strategies to get yourself out of communication difficulties. Mm. And then um, discourse competence, the ability to uh, use language in discourse. So in a conversation, obviously, the ability to link, link turns together, to thread the, the topic of the conversation together, etc., across turns. Right. So... In brief, that, that that's what it means. Um, what was the second part of the conversation? Uh, sorry, it was not the conversation. What was the second part of the question? <laughs> the, question. <Sorry. laughs> um, the second part, I actually forget what the second part was. Um, oh, me... how was it? How can communicative, how can oh, yes, conversation yes, strategies? Yes, you mentioned that. Yeah. Yes, yeah, you mentioned mm -hmm. that in the book because it's a way of linking all of these competencies. Like, how, how is this actually achieved? Well, I think, you know, one of the goals of, one of the central goals supposedly of communicative language teaching is to develop communicative competence supposedly so really the kind of himes uh, idea original idea is is for me anyway fairly central to communicative language teaching but doesn't always get talked about that much and it seems to me that it's what happens very often is that uh in classrooms etc and uh certainly in syllabuses uh, linguistic competence is the one that gets focused on a lot yes uh, you know for obvious reasons so when i talked about conversation strategies i said that um you can teach uh, a language item which fulfills a particular strategy and in doing so there are different competencies which are um if you like covered by what you're teaching so if we take as i was saying when you teach that expression obviously you're teaching the linguistic competence there um, at the same time, that can help with, um, uh, and it, you can only use that expression really with some discourse competence because mm -hmm. you have to see how it links back to what you've said before in the conversation. Right. At the same time, you need to be able to use it pragmatically because you need to use it where it's appropriate. Now, you can say this about lots of language, of course. Um, I think the point was that this doesn't always get used. And strategically, you could use it potentially to um, get yourself out of 
a, a problem. Perhaps you haven't mm. made yourself clear clear enough. And perhaps you want to use it to go back to something and to clarify and to you know get your point across uh, in a better way. So that's really what I meant. But I think the point is that um, communicative language teaching um, <clears throat> has many many benefits, as I said. <clears throat> excuse me. And um, but I think sometimes this idea of communicative competence gets slightly side sidetracked and or sidelined, shall I say? Mm, yes. And linguistic competence is what gets focused on. Yeah. Yeah. That's true. Okay, I have two more. Um, the first one is: What should people who buy the book, Chris, Conversation Strategies and Communicative Competence? expect and the other question i will ask after this one i'm not going to ask you two at the same time that's good conversation strategy right there (laughs) (laughs) yeah what should people expect from it well um they'll 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 get um they'll get an explanation of 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 what i mean by conversation strategies they'll get an explanation of what i mean by communicative competence they'll get a kind of justification of why i think these things are important and then they'll get um four different studies which <clears throat> look at this in different ways and give them different kinds of evidence uh which they can then judge for themselves and think about you know think about that evidence and weigh up that evidence and decide for themselves whether they think this is something which could help them along the way if they choose to um make use of this these ideas then there are deliberately um lesson materials uh uh etc you know left in the book so that that people could take on board and adapt if they if they wished to it's not meant as a kind of recipe book or um specifically as a methodology book it's not really meant like that it's a research book basically but i tried to write it in a way which is um accessible and we mentioned right at the beginning scott thornbury so i think scott thornbury is um very very good at writing about things in a very clear very accessible way to a large number of people and i'm not the same person as him i don't claim to write like him but i kind of had his style in mind when i was writing this and i wanted to have some kind of some some feeling of that accessible because it's when i say he writes in an accessible way it's not a kind of trivial way or it's not a it's not an uncomplicated he talks about quite complicated ideas in a very um understandable way and uh, i think that's that's a rare talent i'm not saying i have that talent but uh that was the the, the goal was to be kind of accessible like that here um so that's probably what i hope people would get from it yeah and actually i i totally got that and i think for for the teacher that every the teacher that's you know teaching a a link class here in canada or um a citizenship class trying to help newcomers to their respective countries Mm -hmm. i think at the end of the day they really want to be able to rationalize their practice and i think yeah you're adding more to the syllabus um and prioritizing new things uh I think that this book, you know, really, really kind of helps them do that. So I, I really enjoyed reading it. Same. Oh, thank you. I was going to say that. I think it's very well written. Um, I think, as you said, um, Chris, it's accessible. And I think that we kind of answer my second question, which is, 
who do you think the audience for the book will be? And I think, as you said, it's it's everyone. It's researchers. It's it's teachers. It's the person who who wants to who wants to have access to this kind of information. And I think what we try to do with the podcast is we really try to make all of that academic research, all that again sometimes difficult language for most practitioners to really. Um, understand. And I think one of the things we might be doing eventually is use your book as part of our community of practice studies. Because as I said, I'm only on, I think I finished a third study this morning, um, but I want to finish the entire book. Um, <laughs> but as you said, it's it's really well written. It's it, it remind, I, I could see how how you were you know, really trying to make this accessible. It, it's a fantastic book. Uh, we strongly recommend Conversation <laughs> Strategies and Communicative Competence by by Christopher Jones. Chris, thank you very much for agreeing to come on the show. Thanks for sharing your, your expertise with us. We very much appreciate. Any any final thoughts, message to the to, to the to those people listening to us here? No, just uh, not particularly, but thank you very much for obviously thanks for, very much for talking to me, all of you, and for, for taking the time to uh, you know show an interest. Yeah, I think you, you you were asking before about who the audience could be. Well, obviously, you know, I would hope that it would interest teachers, but also, you know, master students and, uh, you know, possibly researchers and any book where you do do any kind of research is kind of an invitation to other people to, to take the research further. So hopefully that will happen. You know, I'll be able to do that, but hopefully maybe others will, will take up the baton as well. There's one thing I forgot to mention. This is kudos okay. to your publisher. Um I don't think we've, it was part of my notes, but I was like, well, we're kind of like going in a different direction, but uh, mm-hmm. you, you have been working with uh, Kenlin and Minard, and I don't know how yeah, many, that's I, right. when you, when I read the Kenlin, I was like, is that the same Christopher Kenlin from like articles that I read about back in the eighties? I was like, it's him, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. It was originally. You, yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, he, he, he basically set up the publisher with Joe Minard in, uh, she's based in Japan and um Unfortunately, he passed away, and um, she then, um, I think, took over the the company, and that you know they've 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 kept the name. So yeah, I think they're they're a they're a very interesting publisher, and uh, yes. produced a lot of interesting interesting books uh, and accessible price wise as well, Chris. That's the other thing I was going to say because I was just yeah. looking at uh, most books, mm-hmm. especially certain. I'm not going to name the, name the publishers mm-hmm. here, but some some books are about a hundred dollars, and a lot of people can yes. afford to buy these books. Yes. But um, most books, I think, all books with Kenlin and Minard, they are um, you can buy. Can you buy a, a a hard hard copy of a book as well, or just <laughs> mostly There's... ebooks now? No, there are um, there's a soft cover book as well, which is available. Yeah, I think with with a lot of major academic publishers, uh, the model is the model tends to be to publish a hardcover first, and those are very highly priced. Um, yeah, just so people know, when you're an author, you get no choice about that. And really, you get no choice. You get no choice. Yeah. Oh, I didn't <laughs> know the, that. Set <laughs> the price. You don't set the price. Uh, it doesn't mean that when they're charging a high fee for their hardcover, that that money comes flowing into my bank account. Um, right. <laughs> but the book is ex- it's it's actually not expensive. Um, and mm-hmm. I've talked to to uh, Joe Minard, and we're gonna have a little promo for um, one person who wants to buy the book at a discounted price. Well, just to add one, so we're gonna put it in the show notes, Chris, of course. But just verbally, can you say where people can find the book? Yeah, they can find it on the or various places. The normal 
kind of online outlets and um, also the Candlin and Minard uh, website has a link and I guess you'll Wonderful. put the link to that in the in the notes but Chris once again thank you very much for your time thank you been listening to Teacher Talking Time, brought to you by Learn Your English. Ready to take control of your education? You're in the right place. Teaching, professional development, learning. Expand your world with Learn Your English.